This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. Hear the word of the Lord. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So here we are. Jesus is standing around teaching his disciples, and they are rudely interrupted by some parents who have the awful nerve to bring their little children to Jesus. Luke tells us these were as young as infants. These were small children, and their moms and dads are carrying them and pushing them forwards so that these children can be touched and blessed by Jesus. And the disciples are extremely annoyed about this. It's like when a little kid runs up on stage during worship. They're interrupting what the adults are doing. And these kids and their parents deserve a rebuke the disciples feel. Jesus is doing important things. He's a very, very important person. 
And they see themselves as Jesus' political handlers. And Jesus needs to be protected from small and weak people who are going to bother him and annoy him. These children are not offering the crucial political and social networking that Jesus needs to advance in his quest to be the king. It's a waste of time. And the disciples are speaking in a very unsentimental culture regarding children. They were mouths to feed, and beyond that, they were pretty much a bother. They were not really seen as sweet and cute and darling and cuddly. They were to be kept to the side while the adults did the important things. And religiously speaking, these children were not mature enough for commitments. They were below the age of accountability as Jews understood it. They were not ready to follow the law or to sit under a great rabbi like Jesus. So as far as the disciples are concerned, these parents and these kids are wasting Jesus' time. And of course, the disciples see themselves as Jesus' protectors, as the bouncers, as the ones who guard the inner circle from those who would intrude. I'm sure it must be fun to be the president, but I think it would be even more enjoyable to be one of those secret service guys with your your jacket and your tie and the sunglasses and especially that little, little headset they wear and whisper into. Who knows what they're saying to each other? And it must be very enjoyable to say no to people. You cannot see the president. That must be a very pleasurable thing to say. And I'm sure the disciples really enjoyed saying to people, I'm sorry, sir, Uh, excuse me, ma'am, you may not see Jesus. He is too important for you. They were part of the inner circle. You certainly are not. They are protecting Jesus, they think. And Jesus, when he sees this, he is indignant. He is very, very angry that the disciples are doing this. And you can tell a lot about someone's character by what makes them angry, can't you? You might have a friend who is ordinarily very calm and cool and sweet, and then a certain something happens, and you see them blow up, and you go, whoa, now I understand something about you that I did not before. And what makes Jesus angry is when the disciples are keeping little children from him. That really, really annoys him, and he blows up at them, and he tells them, don't you dare prevent these children from coming to me. They belong here. Do not prevent them. Do not hinder them. Do you know why? Because the kingdom of God belongs to children such as these. These kind of people are exactly who the kingdom of God was designed for. These, far from being an unwelcome nuisance, are actually the ideal citizens of the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring. This word kingdom, the kingdom of God, which we often see in the Gospels, refers to this new, marvelous, and final order of things that God is going to bring about at the end of history. It's when God puts everything right, and he's on the throne, and we are all happily toiling away under God's blessing. And Jesus has come to break this kingdom into the present, into the here and now. The kingdom is the summary of all the good things that Jesus has come to bring. And in fact, in Mark's story, it's clear that the kingdom of God is basically synonymous with eternal life, with treasures in heaven, and with salvation. Basically, they come down to the same thing. And it's to children such as these that this 
kingdom belongs. And of course, we have to ask, what quality is it about children that makes them such appropriate subjects for the kingdom of God? And what does it mean for us to become like children? Here are a few things it probably does not mean. It does not refer to the innocence of children, which is largely a myth. It does not refer to their inherent sweetness, their humility, their trust, their openness to God. It does not refer to their spontaneity. It does not refer to any subjective quality that children have. Jesus actually makes it quite clear what he's talking about because he says right after this, anyone who does not receive like a little child. Jesus is talking specifically about how children receive things. And he's saying, there is one way and one way only to enter my kingdom, to just open your hands and receive just like a little child receives. It's very simple. And children, of course, they receive without shame, don't they? They are quite happy to take without apologizing. And children emerge into the world with zero resources of their own. I mean, nothing. They have nothing. They arrive helpless and totally vulnerable. And even most animals don't arrive in the world this way. The little foal gets up on its shaky legs and can already walk around minutes after birth. Children do not arrive in the world competent. And they depend totally, completely, and unselfconsciously on mom and dad, don't they? They're completely dependent on their parents for food, for clothing, for protection, for shelter. Everything comes to them from their parents. Kids are total freeloaders. They are total freeloaders. I've been watching this Mark Huck baby very carefully. He's only a few weeks old, and we were sitting across from him at a large dinner, him and his parents. And I noticed that when the bill came around, he did not reach out his hand to even pretend to take it. There was no little fold in his diaper that he whipped out his wallet and pulled out his credit card. He shamelessly accepted that meal, which he was going to benefit from, even if secondhand. He shamelessly took it without apologizing, without attempting to pay, as though it was his parents' job to provide for him. That's what he did. Children have nothing, and they contribute nothing. They don't have jobs. They don't have paychecks. They bring very little into the family. They don't do a lot of work, but man, they are a lot of work, aren't they? But guess what? Parents love their children anyway. As much as they demand and as much as they scream and screech, as much as they fill up those little diapers and do all sorts of terrible things, they are loved by their parents. And it's not for anything they provide because they only seem to take. But yet, because there is this parent-child relationship, which is definitely a miracle from God, parents are glad, somewhat regardedly, but we are glad and we love our kids and we take care of them and frustrate us as they might. We do not throw them out into the street. We do not force them to fend for themselves like wild animals. We faithfully take care of them. And Jesus is saying, you cannot enter God's kingdom until you are willing to accept it as shamelessly and unselfconsciously 
as a baby, as a little child. That's how God wants us to receive. Receive. The Bible never talks about us building the kingdom or achieving the kingdom. We want to build and achieve like responsible adults. We would much rather enter on those kind of terms. But Jesus is saying, no, unless you become like a little kid and just take it, you cannot enter. And so step one in Christianity, the very first thing at the very door, the very entrance to the kingdom is us saying, God, I have nothing and I need everything. Help me, please. That is how every single person in God's kingdom gets in. It's the only door. There's no back door. There's no windows you can crawl through. There is only one door, which is receiving like a tiny little child. God wants you to be helpless, vulnerable, and dependent on him. And man, we avoid that feeling at all costs, don't we? Who enjoys feeling helpless, vulnerable, and dependent? As an adult, those are all very bad words. We hate, we writhe and twist to get out of that kind of position. But God is saying, feel comfortable feeling vulnerable because I'm your father and I am going to take care of you. That is what life in the kingdom is all about. And that is actually very good news for us. All of us here at the end of 2018 who might feel weak, who might feel inadequate, who might have failed in some way, who just can't seem to get their act together year after year after year. And God doesn't want you to be worrying about what you are or what you are not doing for him. Instead, he wants you to unclench your little fists and open them up and receive the gift of God's love. That is the very first lesson of the kingdom. And here we are, December 30th, and I wish you just pause a moment and enjoy the fact that we are loved as God's children. Can we just stop and close our eyes and open our hands and receive that afresh from God? I, if I believe in Jesus, am God's child and I am loved by him. And he is going to take care of me as he always has. Thank you, Lord, for this gift. And so Jesus loves and welcomes the little children. He takes them in his arms. He puts his hand on them and blesses them because his favor rests on small children and on big people whose hearts are like small children toward God. Now, we have preached about 25 messages through the book of Mark. And what most strikes me after all these chapters is what Mark puts together. The things, the stories that he juxtaposes that I'd never really, because I've always read these stories as individual units sealed off from what's beside, before and after, but it's very striking what Mark connects together. And here, immediately after, Jesus welcomes the little children and says, receive the kingdom in their kind of simplicity as though on cue, this rich man comes sprinting up towards Jesus. He runs up and he kneels down in the middle of the road, just managing to catch Jesus before he leaves town. 
And this is not a very dignified position at all for a wealthy and important man like this guy is. But he has an urgent question for Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the disciples, who were probably a little um, annoyed at how Jesus had rebuked them, are probably thinking, okay, now this is more like it. These are the kind of people that we love to see coming to Jesus. Rich people, important people, people who can do a heck of a lot more for the kingdom than those little kids possibly could. And this guy is asking the perfect question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And man, wouldn't you love it if our evangelism involved us walking down the street and people sprinting towards us, falling on their knees and asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I wonder how you would have responded in this situation. What tract you would have given them, what Bible verse you would have pointed to them, how you would have explained the gospel and signed them up for the Christian faith. Jesus' response is rather startling. Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Is Jesus just being irritating here, like people who correct your grammar in the middle of an important tear-filled conversation? Is he just picking away at some little theological, minor theological error the guy is making? Certainly not. Jesus is trying to direct this man's attention to what goodness is and where the source of goodness is to be found. This guy thinks that goodness is something that human beings can produce on their own. His very question is, what must I do? And right away, Jesus is saying, hold up there, buddy. Only God is good. There is one fountain of all the goodness in the world, and it is with God, my Father. God is the source of all good. And Jesus, as the image of God, of course, he is good, and he is God, and he, as this man, must learn to recognize is God's representative of goodness on earth. And so Jesus says to the man, well, you know the commandments, and he starts listing off various of the Ten Commandments. They're all commandments from the second table of the law. The first four commandments deal with people's relationship with God. But all the ones that Jesus quotes deal with human relationships. Don't murder, don't steal, don't defraud, don't give false testimony, honor your father and your mother. And this man practically interrupts Jesus and says, Teacher, teacher, I have kept all these since I was a boy. Since I was 13 years old at my bar mitzvah, when I took on the full responsibility of being a lawkeeper, I can say with good conscience, I have studied all the laws of Moses, and I've been very disciplined and very diligent to keep all of them. And I know there's not one of those laws that anyone can point out against me. I have faithfully kept them all, and I have a clean conscience. Yet clearly, there was something, there was something nagging at this man. Because he had kept all of God's commands so far as he knew. He'd been a decent, virtuous person. And yet, he has this hunger within him to know how he might experience eternal life. How can I inherit eternal life? And try as he might to keep God's commandments, to follow the law of God, 
it clearly was not giving him this glorious assurance of his hope with God. It just wasn't. Keeping the law, try as he might, just wasn't doing it for him. And he's thinking, is there some law I've missing, I'm missing, some obscure rabbinic instruction, however extreme, however odd, that I might keep and then finally reach 100% and have this security that I'm so desperate to find. And Jesus, Mark tells us, looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him. And over 40 times in the Gospels, we are told that Jesus looked at someone. In fact, in our passage today, there are four different times that Jesus sees or looks. And Mark is a man who's very spare with his words. It's as though his pen is running out of ink as he's writing. He does not waste words. And yet he mentions that Jesus looked at him. Jesus scrutinizes this man. He sees into his eyes, into his heart. He weighs him up. And Jesus takes the time to simply behold this person, to allow him his weight as a human being, as someone created in the image of God. And Jesus' heart is filled with love for this man. And almost always in the gospel, when Jesus looks, it's followed by compassion. Jesus has compassion on this, this man. You know that Jesus has compassion on rich people? Jesus' compassion on the rich. We think about Jesus' compassion for the poor, but he has compassion on the rich. They might not like to hear that because it's a little bit insulting, perhaps, in their minds, but Jesus feels sorry for rich people like this man. He looks at this man, and his heart is filled with love for him. Clearly, this man is no hypocrite that Jesus needs to crush and denounce. He loves this man, and because he loves him, Jesus speaks a hard truth to him. Jesus loves him and he speaks the truth to this man. For Jesus to love people didn't mean that he petted them and coddled them and told them what they wanted to hear so they could go away feeling good about themselves. He wasn't handing out affirmation left and right. Jesus loves people enough to speak the harsh and brutal truth that they need to hear into his life. And Jesus tells him, Actually, yes, you're right. There is one thing you lack. There's one thing that's missing from your life. Then, he says to this man's horror, go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Jesus challenges this extremely wealthy man to surrender and to abandon all of his wealth, all of it, everything, to surrender it all. Because for this man, all of his assets, and it was a very long list of assets, were actually a liability to him. He thought he lacked nothing, but all of his assets, in fact, were an expression of what was missing from his life. His assets were a liability, and they were filling his heart, and they were holding him back. There's a famous polar expedition, one of the first ones, the Franklin. 
one of the first and disastrous polar expeditions to the North Pole. They attempted to go to the North Pole in 1845, and it was a lavishly funded expedition. The ship was filled with a large library, which is probably the first thing I would take if I was going to the North Pole. There was a library. There was an organ on the ship. There was expensive china on the tables and hand-cut crystal wine goblets. These guys were prepared. Uh, They didn't have room for all the extra coal that they probably should have taken, but it was a very well-supplied and lavishly funded trip. The expedition failed. The ship was stuck on the ice, and the searchers later found the frozen bodies of the team members trying to fight their way to safety. They had elegant silk scarves with gold braid around their neck. They looked beautiful. They were not too effective at keeping the cold out, of course. And on one corpse, they found the sterling silver place setting. This is what this person had taken as he was fleeing the ship to save his life. And Jesus is saying, our wealth and our money can function in exactly the same way. And we can be just as foolhardy and make just as terrible choices as these sailors on the, uh, on the Franklin did. Filling up our hearts with all this clutter and all this junk and failing to make room for the coal of the kingdom that we need to find eternal life. This man's heart clearly loved his money. And even more, he trusted his money. His money was what he was relying on. And it's what Paul describes greed as, idolatry. Greed, which is idolatry. He was relying, he was putting his weight on his wealth that he ought to have placed on God. And of course, money provides all sorts of things, and it means different things to different people. Money means power. If you have money, you can make choices and express your will in the world in the way that someone who doesn't have money can't. Money means power, and of course it also means pleasure. If you are an extremely wealthy person, there is no pleasure really that is denied you. Anything is available to you, you can put your card down and purchase it. And money, of course, gives status. The wealthy are the ones who are ushered to the front of the line. The wealthy are the ones who are able to look down their noses on those who work and must struggle. Money gives status. But most of all, for this man especially, money gives security. I don't know what your bank account looks like after Christmas today, but I would imagine your sense of security is somewhat tied to how many digits are in your bank account. And for this man, money represented security. It was what he relied on to keep him safe and protected. And he's obviously a security-focused individual because he's wondering, okay, when this life is over, how can I inherit eternal life? How can I have all my bases covered and everything insured? I've got it 95% of the way there. There seems to be a small thing missing, and then I can rest and relax. And Jesus is telling this man, you need to give up the wealth that you rely on and rely totally on God. And for you, just giving up some of it or half of it or even most of it is not enough. You need to give up all of your money and completely destroy that idol and pursue the only treasure that lasts forever. That is Jesus' stern and stark word to this man. 
And he is inviting him to become as dependent as a little child. When you have money, you don't need to be dependent. If you have a lot of money, you don't ever have to feel helpless, vulnerable, and dependent. Money seals you off and protects you from that feeling. And it makes you feel like you're in control and things are totally safe. And Jesus is saying, this is death for your soul. You need to destroy that idol and allow yourself to become as dependent as a little child. And Jesus is not demanding a sacrifice he himself is unwilling to make. He's saying, come, follow me as I do this. Remember, this man is interrupting Jesus as he's setting out on his way. And where is Jesus setting out for? To Calvary. Jesus is setting out to the cross. Jesus is the one who has, who is infinitely This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.